So at tonight's evening service when we gather together and uh, we examine some of these questions that you have on your hearts and minds that uh, you're asking your shepherds to answer for you, uh, in some ways that's a, a foreshadowing of another great event that we have to look forward to coming up soon, which will be the ordination of Ross, who has been training to serve as an elder here at the church for a couple years now. And so we are grateful that he has reached the completion of that. So we'll let you know it'll probably happen in the early new year. Um, but we'll be having a time when we can gather together as his uh, brothers and sisters and ask him questions. He'll present to us answers to questions that he has been writing out in a longer form. And I uh, just want to encourage you that, that Ross, in training to fill this, uh, this role, has taken it very seriously. And just as um, that Paul and myself take it seriously and Sean takes it seriously, uh, and now John Williams also has begun the process of training to perhaps serve as an elder as well. So be praying for these men that want to use their gifts in such a way that Christ is exalted and the church is blessed. We should all be thinking of how we might use the gifts that God has given to us uh, to magnify his name and to, to help the brothers and sisters that he has brought us around. So I'm grateful for these men that I get to serve with and for the ways that they love their church and care for you and pray for you regularly. We're in Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 9 this morning, but it's going to take us a while to get there. My intro just got bigger and bigger, so I apologize for that. I recently came across in my studying for this week two very interesting quotes about Jesus from people who did not necessarily follow Jesus, but could not deny the impact that Christ's life has had on the world that they live in. And so this first one comes from, uh, from Napoleon Bonaparte, who was an emperor in France. And he says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But what foundation did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love. And at, his, or at this hour, millions of men would die for him. So that, that's a quote from Napoleon Bonaparte near the end of his life. We don't have any strong evidence that he ever gave his life to the Lord, but that came from one of his highest generals who noted that before he died, Napoleon was going through an introspective and reflective uh, stage and was thinking quite a bit about Jesus of Nazareth. I also have a quote here from Albert Einstein. Most of you know him without introduction. He said, I am a Jew but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He further added, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. Again, that's Albert Einstein's words. So even for those who struggle to put their own faith in God's Son, it is foolish to argue against the fact that the arrival of Jesus Christ into this world impacted the course of history forever. The life of Jesus Christ, the only man to have walked in perfect obedience to God's law, shined as a sparkling contrast to the otherwise consistent sinfulness of humanity. A man who would constantly walk in truth, whose conscience was never burdened by lies that he could have told, 
who could walk through the world without fear that anyone would find out his weaknesses or expose his compromises, for he had none. For the world to be exposed to such a man must have been a stunning time in history indeed. The church that Jesus established would, in obedience to his command, have an unprecedented impact and influence on the world that we live in. No longer centralized within the confines of a signal, single ethnicity or nationality, Christianity had the capacity to influence every culture and nation that was exposed to the light of the gospel. The sovereign hand of God caused the church to grow despite the fact that the message of Christianity confronted the very sinfulness of every man and was offensive to the human heart. And despite the fact that it tended to be embraced by the weak and the outcast of the world, the sick of society rather than its social elite. Nevertheless, Christianity thrived. It could not be held back. It is a core belief of Christians that all people are created in the image of God and are therefore intrinsically valuable, have dignity and worth, not based on what they can contribute to society or what they can do in a conscious and accomplish with their might or their intellect, but simply because God has given mankind a special station above all other living beings in his creation. Consider for a moment how radical that mindset was in the first century, but how much it has shaped the world in the time since Christ came. It is well documented how Christianity has revolutionized the way that modern society cares for orphans, for widows, for the elderly. It is undeniable that much of the progress that has been made in women being treated with honor and equality, not exploited or handled as if they are property, that can be traced back to the very distinct ways that women were treated by Jesus in his time on earth and how they were honored and cared for in the Christian church. The abolition of chattel slavery in various parts of the world, including our own, was driven in large part by Christians with spiritual, scriptural convictions such as William Wilberforce in England. Representative forms of government have been highly impacted by the Christian mindset that people of all persuasions and stations should be treated with respect and love and should not be ruled with tyranny or in an oppressive way. Think of how the Reformation period resulted in the Bible being translated into the languages of the common uneducated people. In several influential nations, the, the, the widespread growth in literacy is tied directly to the availability of the Christian Bible to the people of the common of the common to the common people of those nations. Truly, the coming of Jesus Christ left the world a radically different place than before he took on flesh. And yet, despite the revolutionary changes that occurred in the world as a result of Christ's coming, it would be a serious error on our part to interpret this great step forward as some kind of evidence that the historical plans of God had somehow changed when he brought about the coming of his son. Though the advent and life of Christ changed the world in tremendous ways, it did not represent a change in the direction of God's sovereign plan. There are some very big problems with thinking about it like it does, like it is some sort of a plan B that Jesus came, like, like the old covenant didn't work, so we've got to do something new and different. It can lead to an exaggeration of the difference between the two covenants. 
Prior to the coming of Jesus, God's work through His chosen people, the Israelites, revolved in a major way around the Old Covenant, a covenant of works that promised blessing for the Israelites' obedience and serious consequences for the Israelites' failures to keep the terms of that covenant. From the time it was established to the coming of Jesus, history plainly proved that man was incapable of keeping the terms of the Old Covenant law, which exposed serious problems that man could not solve in himself. Problems that must be solved if man is to be reconciled to a holy and sinless God. At the culmination of his earthly ministry, Jesus established a new and a better covenant, the covenant of grace. As we recited last week during communion in 1 Corinthians 11.25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And surely we have learned that the Lord's table is, is a sign pointing to that new covenant that God has ushered in with the creation of his church. So the idea that the Old Testament is all about the law, but the New Testament and the covenant that blossoms within the New Testament is all about grace is actually an oversimplification. This attitude towards the word ignores that there is amazing grace from God on display throughout the Old Testament. While clearly we see the manifestation of God's plan for redemption in the new, in the coming of Jesus, Throughout the old, we have a rich history of God generously caring for His covenant people and always maintaining a remnant of faithful believers that He has kept for Himself. And this all stems from the fact that from the very beginning of man's fall in the garden, a promise of graceful redemption was established by God, that the seed of woman would bruise the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise his heel pointing forward to Christ and His redemptive work. And this promise is never forgotten or nullified throughout the history of man until its manifestation in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, despite the law showing us our inability to save ourselves, God's grace is operating behind and through these covenants as God holds His people near to Him. And so when people over-exaggerate the differences between the old and the new covenants, it can even result in people speaking as though the God of the Old Testament is somehow a different God than the God of the New Testament. You might have heard people call themselves Christians say, we're lucky we get to have fellowship with this New Testament God who's willing to forgive and who pays for our sins, rather than the Old Testament God who flooded the world and conquered the Holy Land through bloody warfare. Now, People who have that kind of a picture of God, thinking that the God of the New Testament is only a God of peace and love, and there's no force behind what he's doing, but that the God of the Old Testament was was harsh and rigid and cold and did not love, they need to read the book of Revelation. They need to realize that God is no less mighty than he was in the Old Testament. And then they need to go back and they need to read the long-suffering patience of God amongst a sinful people in the Old Testament, that he was not just a God with a, a conquering and bloody sword who was ready to chop everyone down, but he was a God of grace who spared people despite their sins, a God who strove with His covenant people and cared for their needs. The God of the New Testament is every bit the warrior that the God of the Old Testament is. And while Napoleon's observations about the empire of Jesus being established by love are true, that doesn't mean that God is not willing and justified in using His might to protect His sheep. 
and to once and for all, one day, judge sin at his second coming. So for those who trust in the good shepherd, his rod and his staff are also a comfort to us, though they correct us, though they discipline us. If you think that somehow God changed and matured and settled down sometime between the Old and the New Testaments, you don't know the God of the Bible. God is who He has always been. And there is nothing about Him that needs to change. Unlike us, God is in, has no need of sanctification, for He is holiness unmatched. And all that He does is right and good, even if what He does is offensive to us. It is right and it is good. There is a kind of continuity and cohesion between the Old and New Covenants. But at the same time, the coming of Jesus does represent a huge leap forward in the plan that God had been working out through the entire history of the Old Testament. Jesus interpreted himself as no less than the fulfillment of all that the scriptures up to that point had instructed people to expect. He was the manifestation of every promise that God had laid out in the Old Testament scripture. And so let us look upon the Old Testament as the signposts that point forward to this wonderful manifestation of grace that is Jesus Christ taking on flesh. This is made brilliantly clear in a very interesting account that occurred after the resurrection of Jesus on the third day um, following his crucifixion. The disciples were largely heartbroken over Jesus' execution. They didn't expect the king whom God had sent to suffer such shame and apparent defeat at the hand of the Romans, even though Jesus had told them that he must suffer and die for them, they could not accept that fact. So they had no idea how to reconcile this tragedy with their expectations that Jesus, who had come to usher in a new era of strength for the nation of Israel, was now dead. Two of Jesus' many disciples, not part of the twelve, but part of the larger group of those who believed and were supporting Jesus' earthly ministry, they didn't know what else to do. And so they began the journey back to their home of Emmaus, a town that was about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. This journey could easily be taken up in a day, in just a couple of hours, really. And as they walked on the way, they met someone very interesting. Not knowing that it was the resurrected Jesus that they were talking to, for Christ had veiled his appearance to him. He had, a, he had something to share to them that he would have been hindered if they saw him and recognized him. So his appearance showed differently than they expected. They didn't see that it was Christ. And so he comes alongside them and he asks them what had prompted their trip, not letting on that he knew what was going on. And so in Luke 24, verses 18 through 24, it says, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You see the conflict in the hearts of these two travelers. In verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel had hoped, which indicates to us that they knew something of the redemption that had been spoken about in the Old Testament texts. They had been expecting someone to come. They remembered, if not all, then some of the Old Testament prophecies brought forth that pointed forward to this Messiah. And they were hoping that this Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of those prophecies. They knew enough to start expecting a Savior to start expecting a reconciling work that could only come from God's hand. But the death of Jesus shattered their expectations of what the Old Testament had pointed to and made them think perhaps we were wrong about Christ. Upon the death of Jesus, their hope was either in jeopardy of fading away or was already gone. And so then Jesus answers these confused and burdened travelers in verses 25 and 20 to 27. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus identifies a deficit of faith in the hearts of these two disciples. But they were not only slow to believe Jesus, who had told them before his execution that if they destroyed the temple that was his body, that he had the power to raise it up on the third day. Not only were they hesitant to believe those bold words, but they were also slow of heart to believe all that the prophets before Christ had spoken. There were things, according to those same prophets, that the Messiah would have to endure in order to accomplish the tasks set before him by the Father. These warnings existed in the writings of the prophets like signposts that pointed the way to the Messiah that God would eventually provide for them. And yet the people had simply not understood what those signposts were pointing to. To remedy this, Jesus stopped with these two men and began to teach them things that, they, that should have not been a mystery to them. And where does he begin exactly? He begins with Moses, and he continues on through all of the prophets. So we see that the coming of Christ was not some radical change in direction for God, but rather it was the culmination of the things that he had been preparing up to that very moment. Of course, these prophets spoke of the death of the Messiah, of his perfect sacrifice, and we see that uh, previewed in Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant. We see it in Psalm 22. It talks about the sufferings that Christ must endure, but, but the, the glory that he would receive from the Father as a result of that suffering. We see it in the shadows and the types that show up throughout the Old Testament, such as the ark that Noah built, which was a type of Christ. Go into the ark and be saved from judgment. We see it on the, the serpent that was lifted up on a pole where Moses said, look upon this this." Uh, image and you will be saved. You'll be healed from your sickness. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament spoke to the coming of the spotless lamb. Remember the words of John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world, and surely Christ was the last lamb that ever need die for our sins. But the prophets had spoken to much more than just the cross. And as we approach a time of the year when we tend to think much about the first coming of Jesus, His birth, His incarnation, we're going to spend the next few Sundays considering the significant ways that the prophets and the Old Testament Scriptures worked to prepare the nation of Israel and even the rest of the world to receive unto themselves this Jesus who would leave His impression on all of history. The first place we will look to identify a clear signpost that pointed to the eventual birth of Jesus is in the prophet Isaiah. So again, we're in chapter 9, looking at simply one verse of this passage today. If we had time to read through chapter 8, chapter 8 that precedes 9 would not be too foreign for us in the way that it feels and the way that it comes across because it mirrors the book of Hosea who preached around the same time that Isaiah did. We've spent so much time in Hosea recently that we know pretty well the themes by now. Chapter 8 spoke of the unfaithfulness of Israel, spoke of the faithfulness of God despite their unfaithfulness, spoke of how inevitably there must be reconciliation, but before that was to happen, there would be discipline for this covenant failing, that the nation of Assyria was going to come and destroy the northern kingdom. And so some of these themes are very, very familiar to us because of the time that we have spent in Hosea. If we were to read through chapter 8, we would see that book in microcosm in chapter 8. And as chapter 9 begins in Isaiah, just as Hosea does in his own prophecy, in his own book, Isaiah delivers a distinctly messianic message to this people who are facing inevitable discipline for their neglect of the covenant. Isaiah 9, reading only verse 6 this morning, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophecy we're going to focus on this morning is immediately preceded in verses 1 through 5, by a promise that all the suffering that comes as a result of Assyria's inevitable conquest of the north will not be able to blot out the joy that Israel will one day experience when God fulfills the plans that are being prepared by God's sovereign hand. All of those plans are building up to a historical point in time when Galatians 4, in our call to worship, described as the fullness of time has come. And when a very special king will arrive, his presence and reign will advance the will of God in tremendously significant ways. And so six statements are made in verse 6 concerning who this individual is, along with one description of what he will do. And so looks, let's look at that outlier first. What is this special individual to do? Isaiah tells us that the government will be upon his shoulders. Now, this isn't a title necessarily, but in some ways it is. I find it quite interesting that in this section that speaks of the coming king, the literal word king doesn't show up at all. It's never mentioned in verses 6 through 7, but in reality it doesn't need to be. If the government is to rest upon this individual's shoulders, then it should be clear to us that his, this historical figure that Isaiah 9 is pointing forward to is to be a king. The king prophesied 
to be the one descended from David who would take the throne and would fulfill the promises of that Davidic covenant. God's plan to bring a king to Israel would become increasingly important in the years following Isaiah's prophecy as chapter 8 of Isaiah proclaimed comes true. And as the book of Hosea warned and the northern kingdom falls at the sword of Assyria, they lose their autonomy and the kings that had ruled on the throne are, are put to an end in that northern kingdom. And then later in the south, a mere 130 years later, they also will see the same kind of judgment come upon them when it comes to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so a people for, who had for so many generations had their own king would no longer have a human being to lead over them. They would no longer have a land that was under their control. They would not have a formal government that they could call their own. And that vacuum of tangible leadership would persist for roughly 600 years. According to the assurance given in Isaiah 9, verse 6, the Lord has plans to bring that drought of leadership to an end. A new king will come, and this king will be unlike any king that came before him. This new king will rule with power. He will rule wisely. He will rule permanently. And so now we can fix our focus in this passage to the six titles that Isaiah attributes to this coming king. And we must think carefully about this prophetic word because two of those titles appear to be in direct conflict with one another. And they would have been somewhat shocking, I think, to the audience to whom Isaiah originally wrote. I'm looking at title number one and title number four. Unto us a child is born, and he is nothing less than the mighty God. By itself... The idea that the king will be born as a child is not too controversial. Every earthly king that Israel and Judah had had also come into the world this way. David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, all had been born into the Hebrew bloodline. And yet the fourth title ascribed to the coming Savior complicates things because it tells us that this king will be more than just a political figurehead. He will literally be mighty God. Now, taken by itself, that fourth title wouldn't have been shocking either. The idea of mighty king, or mighty God as king over Israel was not foreign to these people. Prior to God allowing that first earthly king in Israel in the form of Saul, Israel had operated as an independent nation with Yahweh functioning as their true king. This form of government, unique to Israel, called theocracy, was the way of the nation of Israel from the time of their exodus all the way until about 1050 B.C. when Saul took the throne. So the passage could conceivably have been speaking about God returning to position of prominence over Israel as their direct king, functioning once again as the one who ruled them and led them and governed them. Except when you take that first title and the fourth title and you recognize that they're talking about the same person. The fact that this king is also described as one who will come as a son, as a child. This king will be born as a human baby. That creates issues of interpretation, and it causes the Israelite who hears this prophecy to pause. Because God is not like man. God is the uncreated one. He is the Alpha and the Omega, a title which means he is the beginning of all things, and he will be the end of all things. So at the time that Isaiah writes this prophecy, there is no way for the Hebrew mind to reconcile the king to come being God, but also being man. 
That is part of why these prophetic signposts are so important to the people of Israel. Through them, through these signposts, God reveals to his people his plans to do things that they could not even conceive of so that they might begin to create a new category of understanding in their mind so that they might be able to identify that it was God's hand that brought about these revolutionary things that were so unexpected and so out of the ordinary. And of course, we know from our perspective in time that Isaiah is talking about Emmanuel, God with us. For the king that would restore Israel once and for all is none other than the second person of the triune God. You know, some historians want to interpret this passage from a secular mindset. They explain the claim that this king to come would be mighty God by referring to the various cultures around the world that thought of their political leaders in terms of being something like little g-gods. The Romans did something similar when their Caesar would often demand that the people gave him veneration and some form of worship as if he was somehow more than just a mere man. And so some historians look at this passage and they're saying the Hebrews are simply borrowing from the cultural tendencies of the nations around them. They're saying that this God will, or this king will be so mighty that he'll be viewed as if he was more than a man, that he was somehow God-like. But that interpretation cannot be as Israel was founded on the monotheistic belief that there is only one God. And that for any created man to make claims to godhood would be nothing less than blasphemy against the one true God. So this king to come, who would also hold the title of mighty God, could be none other than God in flesh. Emmanuel, God breaking through the divide that separated man and God by taking on a true human nature and adding it to himself being born in a human body, being born under the covenant of the law as we are, and living as we live, yet without the sin that so defines and defiles us. This is far beyond simply another king in the succession of the Davidic line. Though Jesus truly did make his way into the world through that specific bloodline of King David, the genealogy that you find in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel and the genealogy that you find a couple chapters into Luke's gospel will testify to that fact. Jesus truly was the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. He came from the bloodline of that greatest king that Israel had known. But he was more than just the next man in line. Once we come to understand that the promised king to come is God the Son, the other titles that describe him begin to make much more sense as well. Title number three, he will act as a wonderful counselor to us. As Israel's future king, the promised Messiah will counsel his subjects in wonderful ways, ways that man had never experienced before. And this one might be difficult for us to understand, for we have a concept in our minds of what a counselor is. And it is much different probably than the, the idea of a counselor in the time of Christ or in the time of Isaiah. When we hear the word counselor, we think of a personal individual who sits down with us one-on-one -on -one and studies our personal life situations, one who listens to our woes and our difficulties and sees the challenges that we are facing and then gives us personal advice, implants to us the wisdom that they have gained through studies or experiences of their own. That's what we think of when we think of a counselor. 
But that was not really an office at that time. Therapy was not a thing for the Israelites, okay? So counselor is used here to describe the attributes of a king who functions as a counselor in conjunction with his authority to rule. A king was a counselor in that he was the one who possessed the greater authority to rule when there was indecisiveness in his nation. When the people of, under his care had a problem and could not solve that problem, they would go to their mighty counselor, to their king, who would hear both sides and would adjudicate and would determine what was the best path. And so this king to come, this Jesus, will be a wonderful counselor. But he will be a wonderful counselor in the sense that as our king and ruler, he tells us exactly what is right. He will judge and adjudicate. He will guide his people and direct them where they need to go. The greatest counselor in a country would be its king, the one wisest enough to rule all the people. And because this particular king would be the manifestation of God himself, Emmanuel, then what better counsel could the people hope to get? It is true that God knows the grumblings of our heart. It is true that he is concerned with our personal story. He knows the depths of our despair. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our, uh, our tendencies to be tempted. But the title Wonderful Counselor refers to the fact that the Messiah who God would send was sent to rule us and direct us with authority. The government will be on his shoulders as a clear indicator that Jesus wasn't just sent to inspire or to simply advise. He was sent to have dominion, to have authority. He was sent to render verdicts, to judge between right and wrong, and to bring righteousness to the nation that is his. The fifth title that we see here, that he would be an everlasting father, brings significance as well. Now, this might seem like a strange choice of title since Isaiah 9.6 is clearly speaking about God, the Son, Jesus Christ. But when we adapt a biblical understanding of the Trinity, of this, this beautiful union of Father, Son, and Spirit as one God with one nature expressed in three persons, then it will become clear to us that while the Father and the Son and the Spirit are truly three persons of one, uh, one united Trinity, they are so united in their will and their decree that the operations that each of the three performed can rightly be spoken of as being the work of the one holy God. This is sometimes called the doctrine of inseparable operations. And it means that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the whole work that the others are, are involved with as well. So there is shared credit and glory. We do not just glorify Jesus Christ because he died on the cross. We glorify the triune God for making this possible. Here's an example of how the works of three persons of the Trinity are at times accredited to all three of those, uh, all three of the people, the persons in the Trinity. The scripture tells us who raised Jesus from the dead. And look at how it describes it in these three verses. In Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, Galatians tells us God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But then we go to John 10, verse 18. It says, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. What's he speaking of there? He's speaking of his resurrection. 
This charge I have received from my Father. So who rose Christ? Christ has the authority to raise himself up again. And what does Romans 8, 11 have to say about the one who rose Jesus from the grave? It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, from, uh, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So who's being given credit there for the resurrection of Christ? The spirit of him who raised you. So the spirit is given glory for this as well. This is the inseparable operations of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The perfection of their unity means that there are times when we can even speak of, even though this is somewhat confusing to us, of Jesus Christ as this eternal Father. As Jesus rules, he is king over his people along with the Father and the Spirit. But this title also indicates that he would rule in fatherly ways. His rule makes those who are a part of his kingdom more than just simply subjects. They are his family, the ones for whom he provides. Explain, uh, it ex- helps us to explain this idea of God as, the, the heavenly, or the, as Jesus Christ as the eternal father. When we think about how a king would accomplish his goodwill among his people, Jesus is going to come to earth. He's going to live a life that is completely free of sin. He's going to suffer in the place of those who would trust in him. Why? So that those sinners who were rebels to the kingdom, who were outside of the walls of the kingdom, could be brought near, not only for pardon, but to be named after Christ and to be invited to be a part of the family of God himself. That's part of the uniqueness of this kingdom, is we're not just neighbors. We are brothers and sisters under one holy father. This one who rules us, cares for us, and has a vested interest in our well-being because we are a part of his holy family. So his authority over his subjects would be a fatherly rule, and it would be an everlasting rule. The Messiah would act as a father to them, but not as a father who eventually steps back and allows his maturing children to be their own rulers. This king would continue to rule and to protect and to provide. Think about that. We serve as parents to our children. And our goal is for them to one day be able to go out on their own and to be autonomous from us, to be able to operate as godly young men and women in the world. But the Lord God will always be a father over us, even though he brings us to a greater maturity, even though he builds us up and edifies us and doesn't let us stay as babes or infants, but gives us knowledge and gives us experience and even responsibilities and dominion of sorts. He never stops being father over his children. He will be forever this king who rules over his sons and daughters. And how could he reign forever as a father like this if he's only just a man? He must be more than that. He can only be an everlasting father if he is divinity joined with humanity. Now this king, according to the sixth title, will also be the prince of peace. And this is more than just political peace, friends. The fact that he is titled the Prince of Peace speaks to more than just an absence of conflict and war. For Israel had experienced that before, hadn't they? For a time under Solomon, the riches of Israel were so great and the power of their military influence so strong that no one dared oppose them. Solomon did not have to go to war as his father did. There was peace in the land. But this eternal father would bring a different kind of peace, a more 
complete and thorough peace. This would be a peace that existed not from nation to nation, but from man to God. How did he do that, brothers and sisters? He did that through his atoning work on the cross. Jesus Christ as a king did not just rule from afar, but he came and dwelt with us. And he dwelt with us, taking upon himself the burden of the same law that we must follow, the law that we cannot follow. And yet Jesus did what we could not do in keeping every aspect of that law. He kept it perfectly and he kept it beautifully. He was a perfect example of what a man should be. But Jesus did not come just to give an example to us that would be nothing short of taunting us for we don't have the power in of ourselves to be that man that only Christ could be. He came to not only live perfectly but to become the sacrifice we needed to erase the debt we had accumulated with God. As rebels to the kingdom, the only way we could be accepted into the kingdom was through the atoning work that Jesus did. And by dying in our place, he offered up a life, a perfect and holy life, so that the life that we owed to God would be satisfied and justice would be done. Here is how Christ carries that title, the Prince of Peace. Because of his reconciling work, he makes peace between God and man where enmity and mutual hatred used to exist. So when we, when we can look at the scriptures, when we can identify the mighty hand of God working his saving will throughout the scope, the full scope of human history, it will grow our trust and appreciation for the triune God. We will have a fuller picture of the scope of God's influence over all things. And so it will broaden our understanding of God's hand and how far it reaches. I think as Christians, we sometimes make the mistake, even if we don't verbalize this, of thinking of God as just being our God, as the Christian God, and that he works in our lives. But there's a whole wild world of rebellion out there that, that really God's not focused on. He's only focused on us. And that's not necessarily the truth. God affects every aspect of his creation and rules over it sovereignly. It's not just about God working in this one moment of life, for God is working through every detail of every moment to ensure that his decree comes to pass. There is not a single second in the whole stream of time in which our God has not had the whole of creation under his sovereign control. Be humbled as you think about the magnitude of that statement. And then contrast that to the common way that we manage our lives. How hard do we work, brothers and sisters, to try to gain a handle on things for just a moment of time? I don't know how many times this past week I've said, if I could just have an hour when things aren't going wrong for me and I don't have 10 people calling me and I don't have everything up in the air wondering how I'm going to catch all those things with my two little hands, if I could just have one hour, I'd get through the rest of this week, right? But I don't even have sovereignty over an hour. I can't even make that one hour be exactly what I want it to be. And yet here we are worshiping today a God who is sovereignly in control of every nanosecond of time. There is nothing that has ever occurred apart from his purview. God is in control and he rules it perfectly. God does not operate like us. He does not just build up peace for a moment only to have it fade away again and have to build it back up again. Every aspect of time as it unflows from his sovereign will is purposeful and essential. 
There is no piece of the puzzle that is outside his influence. He is constantly placing every detail as it needs to be. And so as we think about the Old Testament and we reflect on the beauty of those signposts that point forward to things that actually happened hundreds of years after they were spoken of, we can rejoice in the scope of God's reach. We can remember that we have a God who is not limited in his ability to make things occur the way they need to occur. Secondly, we will develop a greater capacity for appreciating the unity of God's will over time. God is not like us in the way that he thinks. He doesn't come up with a plan A and then have several other options to call if things don't go his way. For God knows every way and it can only go his way. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And some of you might think, I must be one of those people this week, for I have felt tossed by the wind. The waves are so big I can't even see over them right now. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we're we're challenged by James in in his letter to not be double-minded, to not think maybe God can do this, but to think God can certainly do this if it be his will. And so I want what God wants, and I believe that he can make anything happen that fits his will. I'm not going to be double-minded. But sadly, it's difficult to not be a double-minded man. The plans and the expectations of human beings like like us must almost constantly change. Our perception of the world readjusts every time we learn something new. And God is merciful to teach us new things and to increase our understanding of the world that we live in every day of our lives. But that makes our assessment of the world quite unstable. And it adds to both our anxieties and our fatigue. But what joy there is to meditate upon the unchanging nature of our single-minded God and to believe in our heart and to confess with our mouth that our God never changes, nor do His plans. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. As Hebrews 13 says in verse 8 through 10, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by the diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, meaning those who look after the body only and don't think about the things of the Lord, they have no right to eat from this table. But we, having trusted in Jesus Christ, have been brought near to this table. We have a king who is an everlasting father, and he has a perfect plan that he's unfolding according to his perfect will. And so we can have greater confidence in the fact that our God is single-minded. And while we might vacillate in our expectations, in our interpretations, God is always who he has been, and he will not change, nor can he. Thirdly, as we contemplate the Old Testament and how these signposts point so faithfully towards the coming of Christ and his holy work on earth, then our faith in the living God will only be strengthened when we identify the Lord's consistent hand over all things that he governs. Let me show you how the fulfillment of prophecy in the ministry of Jesus, in his advent, his life, 
his death and his resurrection can have a fortifying effect on those who take it to heart. John the Baptist, this man who came as a forerunner to Christ, who was a relative of Jesus, who proclaimed to Israel that the one you've been expecting is finally here. All those signposts that many of you have been looking towards, keep your eyes open because the one they're pointing towards has arrived. He loudly proclaimed that all these signposts were manifested in Christ. He preached repentance and forgiveness of sin. He declared that those signs all pointed not to himself, not to John the Baptist, but to one greater than him, to Jesus, the one God the Father had sent to save his people. Now John was faithful in his calling. He seemed to understand the connection between the old and the new covenants better than just about anyone at that time. But his calling was not an easy calling. He preached the truth and he preached it in boldness. And no doubt some rejected him. He preached the truth to Israel and he even preached the truth to the lost world around him. The governor at that time in that region was King Herod. And King Herod had committed great sin in divorcing his wife and marrying his, ex, his brother's ex-wife. This was a scandal at the time. And John was not bashful in calling King Herod to repentance, saying that what he did was clearly sin. And so the king could not have that negative PR floating around. He had John arrested and thrown into prison. There John sat, unable to baptize, unable to preach, and his confidence began to waver. And so we see in the book of Luke, Luke speaks so much to the, the ministry of John the Baptist. We see in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, how this impacted the heart of John the Baptist. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, what is John the Baptist worried about? He's worried that Christ might not be that Messiah that he has preached to everyone to expect him to be. Is this truly the mighty one of God? Why am I in prison today? Why are things not going the way that I expected if Jesus truly is the one on the throne? Verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, these two disciples of John. He said, go and tell John the Baptist what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Remember, Luke is the gospel writer who spends the most time showing us how God prepared John the Baptist, filling him with the Spirit even from the time that he was in his mother's womb. Here is a man of tremendous faith, a man whom Jesus even said that there was no one like him among, among men born of woman. And even his heart and his confidence, even John the Baptist's heart and confidence wavers from time to time. But what is it that Jesus specifically provides for his relative when John is depressed? 
when he is imprisoned, when he is struggling to know whether or not the current set of circumstances can truly indicate that Jesus is Messiah, what does he do for him? He heals. He casts out demons. He does exactly the kinds of miracles that were foretold in what? In the writings of the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah 61. And then he tells John's disciples to return to John in prison and to bear testimony to him that what was promised to come to pass in Isaiah has certainly come to pass. Do not forget, John, that God who unfolded his will and revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old Testament is the same God who is active today. And all the things that he promised must certainly come to pass. Jesus is the Messiah. In God, all his promises are yes and amen. And it is the very fulfillment of these things that the prophets spoke and wrote down hundreds of years before that are to function as the comfort that John the Baptist needs to regain his strength and to remember the power of the one he has been called to serve. May the fulfillment of prophecy in the birth of Jesus, in his perfect life, in his atoning death, in his victorious resurrection, may these carefully foretold events that have surely come to pass, just as our God ordained that they would, may they proclaim in us peace and calmness and a blessed assurance that there is no one like our God who can say it and do it, even over the span of hundreds of years. By his mighty sovereign hand, God is securing the salvation of his people through the son that he sent to triumph over our sin. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is doing this. Let us pray. God, we praise you today, knowing that no one could do the things that we spoke of this morning. There is no earthly king that could ever match the description of the king spoken of in Isaiah 9, 6, except Christ. Christ came and fulfilled every requirement of the law so that we might be set free. Christ also came to establish his reign and he rules today on high, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we have, Lord God, every reason for confidence. If we neglect to consider and to meditate on these mighty prophecies of the Old Testament, then I fear that we will grow weak in our confidence in you, that we will fail to see the magnificent way by which you have turned history like waters in the hands of someone in a stream so that it would go one way or the other. You are the one that directs its outcomes. Help us, Lord God, to be blessed by the knowledge that you are mighty and powerful and that what you say is going to happen, will surely happen. We love you, and we are grateful to be numbered among your saints. May you even use the preaching of the gospel today to perhaps open the eyes of someone who has yet to see your glory so that today might be the day of salvation for them. We pray that you would continue to grow our church in number and in strength so that we might magnify your great name in this world. And we ask all these things through Christ Jesus, our King. Amen.